Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name's Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host, and I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute Family Counseling Recovery Center in Long Beach, California. We serve the Orange County and LA area. If you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, please look us up. You can find more information at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. I have a great guest today. His name is Robert Weiss, and he is a digital age intimacy and relationship expert specializing in infidelity and addictions. And he is also the author of several highly regarded books, including Out of the Doghouse, a step-by-step relationship-saving guide for men caught cheating, Sex Addiction 101, a basic guide for healing from sex, porn, and love addiction, and also Cruise Control, understanding sex addiction in gay men. So I had Rob on today to just talk about the new kind of issues regarding internet pornography in the modern age and all the issues that are kind of coming with that and also just exploring this new technology and what it might mean for future generations. So we have a really good conversation about that, looking at that and exploring all the different possibilities. And what I really enjoyed about the conversation and talking with Rob about it was his very non-alarmist approach to bringing this information and talking about it and bringing this knowledge to everybody. So I really appreciate his stance and how he thinks about it. And so it was great to have this conversation with him. So I hope you guys enjoy it. And once again, if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. That really does help. And I really appreciate it. Also, if you'd like comment on the blog about this podcast, I'd love to hear what people are thinking as well. So with that, let's begin this episode. 
All right, everyone, welcome to episode 37 of the Addicted Mind podcast. I have a wonderful guest today. His name is Rob Weiss, and he is going to talk about a very current subject today, the new realm of sexuality and the internet, and possibly the problems that might be coming with it. Rob, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Rob. My, I'm Rob Weiss. I'm a psychotherapist, an author, a sexologist. I do, I open a lot of and design and open a lot of treatment centers for sex and intimacy and, and relationship disorders. I've been in the field about 25 years, something like that. So I have spent a lot of time writing and looking at all these issues, and I am thrilled to be invited to the show today. Thanks for coming on. And, you know, we had kind of talked a little bit earlier. Uh, we had had lunch and we were talking about these clients that both of us deal with sex addiction and porn addiction. And we were talking about how the internet is impacting that. And uh, we thought it would be a good idea for you to come on and talk about that subject because it really is impacting sexuality, I think. Well, there's a variety of issues. I, I don't know exactly who's coming in for what. And I think, by the way, this is part of our problem is we don't exactly know why hundreds of thousands of men at the peak of their sexual prime between 18 and 28 want to avoid sex. Like we don't we don't really have the research for that. So you and I can guess the reasons. I have a couple of ideas about why they're there. And I think there are different people seeking help for those issues for different reasons. But it is just overall back up a little bit curious that everybody I ever met when I was 18 or 20 couldn't wait till they were old enough to buy a Playboy. And now like all these young men want to avoid porn as much as they possibly can because they think it's ruining their lives. So interesting topic. Yeah, and that's definitely what we found as well. I think in the last five years, we started to get the calls of these younger clients coming in and saying, hey, I have this problem. It's ruining my life. My relationship is failing. Or I, I can't even get into a relationship. And they're like 25, 30. And they've kind of grown up in this internet porn world that, yeah, my age, it was a playboy or a, or a hustler even that was the that was the uh, extent of it but now i know but now it's uh, quite a bit different well it's different for lots of reasons i think the primary there are two primary issues that are driving at least the porn problems i can't speak to all the others i mean i can but we're talking about porn um one is certainly Dwayne, you know when you talk about us buying a hustler or a playboy or whatever that was when and you know i'm a little older than you but not that much you know we had to go some to a place and we had to show our faces yep. and we had to get there and park our car out back and hope we didn't know the sales clerk or something. And and they were icky places with smelly floors and cameras and who wanted to buy something so intimate and personal there. And then half the time you had to, re after three or four days, you had to return the darn thing because they were rentals. Yep. And I know as a guy that we have a limited number of images that that turn us on and then we're kind of done with those images. We like new stimulation. Yeah. So the fact that the internet has now brought people not only uh, immediate access to intensely stimulating imagery and content, but it's also free and you don't have to go anywhere to get it. You don't need time to think about whether you want to do it or not. You know, all of the, all of what I would call the, uh, what's the word in our word, in our world as therapists, we use the world observing ego, but I would say all the t chances and times that someone might've said, had to look at themselves and say, is that really what I want to do? Or is this a good idea? Or should I really be doing this? Or maybe not today? Or that's all gone. 
Yeah. You know, it's just one click. And that immediacy is creating problems for people. Yeah, I definitely see that because, yeah, when I was younger, it took some effort to find any sexual material in that way. And you had time for your brain to go, ah, you know what? It's, it's maybe not worth it. And here with internet pornography, it's, it is literally microseconds away. Well, I think there's just one other aspect that really makes it profoundly different than the way we grew up is that if we had our magazine and our video back in the day, Dwayne, you know, we would have taken it home and looked at those images um, and that would have been about it. But right now, online porn is much more like uh, gambling. It isn't like you go to the casino and you sit down to play blackjack and they say, oh, we've gone through that hand of cards. We're done now. You can go home. You know, right. When you sit down at the table to play craps or blackjack, whatever you're playing, they don't run out of dice. They don't run out of cards. It's an endless loop. And part of what, a drive, what drives addictive behavior is anticipatory fantasy. It's the idea of what lies ahead. And so gamblers have always looked at the, that deck, not the cards in front of them, but that deck and said, hmm, that's where the addiction lies, you know, because that's where the next card where my really big win might be. And we couldn't do that before with porn because you bought what you bought, you took it home and that was it. But now, you know, now online porn is like that deck of cards. It never ends. There's always the idea in your head that there could be this image or that image or, ooh, what if I just look for five more minutes, I'll find X, Y, Z. And so the anonymity, the ease of access and the unlimited nature that porn now presents, I, I think all these things really have escalated the problem you're seeing. Yeah, and, and that, uh, like what you're kind of saying, what I, I've heard before is that idea that we're wired for that novelty experience, especially sexual novelty. So uh, once again, especially men, yeah, wired wired for that, so that arousal can be maintained. And a lot of the clients that I come in, it doesn't seem to be so much about the orgasm itself, but this kind of this endless pursuit where they can look at pornography for four or five hours, and they're putting things that are important to them aside to engage in that. And it's instant, at work, on the break, at home in the morning, at night. It's, uh, yeah, it's something very different. So it's kind of a, the porn, porn has kind of become a go-to glass of wine, a go-to uh, bottle of scotch. Our madmen fathers would have maybe gone to that as an escape. Now it seems like I got to click on some porn. Right. So when when we start to look at this idea of, I know there's some debate around this, around porn addiction and and can people actually be addicted to pornography? What's your thought on that? Well, I, I, what I, my thought is I don't, I don't like all the names that we have because no one can agree on what they are. Right. <laughs> you know, if we all agreed it was porn addiction, that'd be great. But part of the challenge in, in the field of psychotherapy is that everyone has an opinion and research shows things that are similar, but not all exactly the same. So yes, I think porn addiction definitely deserves its own title, its own look. It definitely deserves, and I don't mean look like design. Mm -hmm. I mean, someone, some researchers taking a serious look at it because we have a hyper-stimulating, hyper-arousing form of content that has never been delivered to us in this way before. And so we as people are having a different response to it than we had to old-fashioned porn. But I don't think that the research culture and the public in general is really looking at that as much as you and I see it. Okay. So they don't, they're not, there's not as much awareness about it out there about how this becomes compulsive. Well, or can become compulsive. I think that the sexual health folks, and I, I think I'm a sexual health person also, but I think those people who have been very dedicated to 
helping our culture become more comfortable with homosexuality and fetishism and kink and things that we no longer really pathologize, they're not too happy about the idea of us now pathologizing anything sexual. So there's lots of struggles in the field about how can you call someone's genuine choice to engage in something sexual a, a problem? It's sort of like not believing in alcoholism. You know, it's like saying, I don't understand. How can you say that there are people who can't stop drinking? Of course they can. Anyone can. Well, if you're someone who can't, you understand alcoholism. And if, you under, if you're someone who can, then you may not. And the majority of folks don't have a problem with porn in this way. They look at it occasionally or whatever way they do, and they put it down. So they don't understand why it is that someone would struggle with it. And then they think, oh, well, that's just the person who has religious issues or they just have moral issues or they don't see it as the potential of having a mental health issue. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Yeah, that's, in, that's interesting that you, you say that because a lot of the these younger people that are coming into my office, a lot of times they're not necessarily religious. They're not... They don't necessarily seem to have the same kind of trauma that we kind of see what when we kind of refer to the kind of classic sex addiction. Right. It seems to be to be very, very different. And most of these, I call them kids, they're 25, they're not really kids, but these younger adults have grown up with this pornography. And it seems different. I don't know. There's no research for that or anything, but that's just my like anecdotal. I think they experience. are doing. I, we we've talked about this before. And I, I mean, I think they are different. I, I think that we have traditionally seen uh, in our practices when we deal with sex addiction, people have early, complex, profound trauma, and most of the people that we treat have been dealing with emotional challenges all of their lives. Doesn't mean they're not intellectually sophisticated. I mean, you could be, oh, I don't know, president of the United States or a famous actor and have intimacy and sexual problems, but still do well in the world. But we have always seen people who had real damage to their early development in terms of trust, parental care, relationships. Most of the sex addicts we've seen, sex addicts we've seen over the last 20, 30 years are people who had emotional challenges early and young, and therefore they have chronic emotional challenges throughout their lives, and especially around intimacy and sex. But these people don't all have those issues. And it's interesting when you talk about this, because I think about, well, what gets missed in terms of your human development if you spend half your high school days looking at porn? <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, maybe you don't join a team. You know, Maybe you don't hang out with friends. Maybe you don't make a lot of friends. Maybe you don't date. And, and then I start to think about what's get, what gets lost for the person who spends all this time looking at porn at a young age. And I think it's a different part of their development. They're missing out on social relationships and dating and, and intimacy building and, and being a part of a group and, and all of that peer stuff that happens in your late teens. It's different than the deficits that most of the sex addicts we've treated up until this point have because their deficits are much earlier. Right. So it does seem likely that we know that people kind of glom on to addictive behaviors when they are experiencing overwhelming circumstances or have, because that's their way of coping. It comes a new way of coping. 
And so for some people, I think high school could be a little overwhelming. For some people, I think high school, you don't get picked for the team. You're not the most popular person. You didn't get someone to go out with you. Maybe going home and looking porn for three or four hours, that might become a go-to way to feel better. And then as you stick to that, then you're really not learning how to make friends, invite someone out and all that stuff. And that's a lot what, um, as you're saying that, that's a lot what we see too. These younger adults, they just don't have that experience because undue stress and they found porn and it worked and uh, they felt better and they didn't have to deal with these issues and they were able to uh, kind of move along. And then as they get into their later years, it seems that that's when it re- they start to really see it as a problem. When you're 18 or 19 or 21, I don't think most people that age, unless they're already involved with somebody or is thinking about, oh, I've got to go out there and find my long-term committed partner. So yeah, I imagine if you're looking at lots of porn while you have other friends who are hooking up and dating and you're 19, you know, that's whatever it is. But when you're 27 or 28 and your friends are starting to get serious in relationships and they're starting to settle down, they're starting to talk about long-term commitments and moving in with people, and you're still looking at porn for four hours a night the same way you did when you were 15, then the problem becomes much more apparent. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, you you see that. And and they really like, they want help and they're like, this is, I can't live like this. This isn't working for me. But it's not just the porn doing, you know, I think I've read a lot of these young folks who say that they've had a lot of sexual hookups. They've been on Tinder, they've been on Grindr, they've been on some kind of app. They've hooked up with lots of people. They've had sex with people. They've looked at lots of porn, but they have no idea how to ask someone out. They have no idea how to hold someone's hand. They have no idea how to wait two days to see if that person's going to call back. There's all of that intimacy stuff that we kind of learn in high school Mm -hmm. around dating and sexuality that they seem to have missed because they went straight to the sex. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely see that. And that kind of goes, we talked about earlier, this kind of goes into the other topic that we wanted to talk about, which is this new age of the internet and the stuff that's kind of coming down the road <laughs> with new technology. Yeah, I actually think the problems that we're seeing today are going to be superseded by the problems that we're going to have tomorrow. <laughs> Having spent a little bit of time in VR porn, in VR sex environments, um, I hate to say this, you're going to laugh at me, but doing research. Because <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. um, these environments don't exist. So a lot of what I have to do is through the companies that make this stuff. But but doing research for documentaries and books and stuff, I've had the chance to sit with another person while they were being flirtatious. I asked them not to be sexual, so they were flirtatious with a virtual reality headset on my head. And I got to tell you, I have never had an experience like that. I mean, I felt like this woman was with me. She cared about me. She liked me. Plus, the minute I put the headset on, she was four inches from my face. Who gets that close to you except your children and your loved ones? So she was already in my personal space, and she was beaming and smiling and so glad to see me and a little bit sexy. And I just thought, I think I'm going to have clients who will never leave this space. Right. I think that's... I had a chance to experience some... Virtual reality, a friend of mine who programs virtual reality brought me over to his house and showed me the new game they were developing. And I was blown away by it. Mm-hmm. I, I, didn't, I didn't want to leave that. It was so beautiful. It was so amazing. And I could not even imagine if you mixed sex into that, how appealing that would be. Well, I think if anybody wants to see Ready Player One, the Spielberg film, or read the book, which is even better, I think, uh, you get a sense of what it's like to live in, to live in virtual reality. Um, not to visit the internet to buy something on eBay, 
not to chat for an hour or two with a friend, not to stream a movie, but to actually go to another world or go to be with another person. And there isn't an experience that any human being has had like this, except in real life when you're sitting with someone. So it's it's not something I can explain to people when I say you're going to put a headset on, you're going to feel like you're with a person. They're like, but I have a headset on. I don't understand. You know, Dwayne, I've heard you tell the story like where they they put that virtual reality headset on and they ask you to walk across a bridge and there's a little gap in the bridge and it's 3,000 feet down and nobody wants to cross. They know they're wearing a headset. They know they're wearing a headset. They know they're in a room. They know they're sitting down, but they will not walk across that little gap in the bridge because they look down and all they can see is those thousands of feet that they're going to fall and and even though they absolutely know that they're not there, they still can't do it. Yeah. And to me, that says that this is real enough, that people are going to have relationships, people are going to have prostitutes, people are going to have uh, affairs, people are going to have virtual reality sex lives that go far beyond what they're doing in their day-to-day life. Yeah, I think it's going to be really, we really don't know what it's going to going to be like. I mean, it's, it's moving so fast. It's going to be, it's going to be a very interesting time. I have young kids and I really wonder at times what this world is going to be like as they get older and they grow up because it's, it really is, it's profound. And your brain doesn't know, I mean, your brain on one level knows that it's not real, but in another level, it feels completely real. Like you're there. Yeah. I don't know how else to describe it either. Well, the good news is that we are older and in my mind, and that means that and even the people you're treating, Dwayne, these 25-year-olds, 26-year-olds, 23-year-olds, they grew up in the analog age, even though they didn't have social media when they were kids. They didn't have streaming video content when they were kids. They they grew up with very basic computers like we first had in the 90s. And so their brains didn't evolve the way the brains of young children are evolving now. And when I look at my three-year-old grandnephew and he's sitting there with his pad, playing on his pad, while he's talking to his mom and he's watching TV and his brother has a pad and he's looking over at it while he's also petting the dog. These kids at two or three years old, their neurological development is so much more sophisticated than mine or yours would have been. I mean, you and I, let's face it, we grew up outside playing snowballs yep. or playing in trees <laughs> or running with a dog or throwing a ball with friends when we were two or three or four. That's not what these kids are doing. You know, their brains are moving so quickly. And my point is, is I think that there will be a point at which younger people will have a better ability to adapt to these things when they're not a generation that's sort of caught in the middle. What I'm curious about is what today's 20, today's five-year-olds, how will they do 20 years from now? I expect that today's 20 to 25-year-olds are going to struggle because they're really caught in between two different worlds. Yeah, I think that's so true. I mean, that's a really good point. And it's moving so fast. It's going to, yeah, I don't know either. And sometimes and I, I worry about uh, the young ones. Oh, well, what parent doesn't? You wouldn't be a good parent if you didn't worry. But I really, I mean, you, you've heard me speak. And you know that I have very strong feelings about this. I think humanity has always had profound technologies that have shifted our ways of living. Because I think of technology being things like fire and the wheel and prescribed medicines. And, you know, so I think that we've always, always in our history as human beings had profound technological adaptations that we've had to make. And it has always been true in evolution that those people who adapt well will do, you know, the people, the person who could keep the fire going in their cave, the guy who kept being able to cook his food year after year, he and his kids did a lot better than the guy who could not get that fire going, could not cook his food. Those people may not be our ancestors. So in the biggest sense, Dwayne, it may not matter. I mean, and I'm not speaking about the individual client you're seeing, but in the larger cultural sense, 
you know, some are going to struggle and some are going to do well, but it has always been that way. And so when you worry about your kids, I would worry about, am I loving them enough? Am I caring about them enough? Am I supporting them enough? Because if they are whole, strong human beings, they're going to tolerate and manage and adapt to any new technology as human beings have always adapted to new technologies. So worry less about your kids. Don't forget about you and me and people who help those who struggle with the adaptations to new technologies, because that's what therapists and people like us do. So when looked at it that way, I would say worry less, learn more. <laughs> that's a good, that's a really good point, Rob. I really like that. And uh, that's just so true. Love your kids and they're going to be, they're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially with all this new technology coming out. Yeah. I think that's I, the I think truth. You know, Duane, I think it's important that, you know, I do see a lot of hang, hand wringing about for, by parents. Believe me, I speak all over the place. And, you know, my thought is our parents were wringing their hands about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Oh, my God. <laughs> Boy, were my parents not happy about the, what the results of the technological development of the pill in 1962 gave my sister in the late 60s in high school and college the opportunity to sleep with men without choosing to marry them. They didn't like that too much. And uh, they didn't like the music we listened to a whole lot either. And uh, even though they bought me the record player and gave me the allowance to buy the record and then turned me to turn it down. (laughs) And now I hear the same thing from parents. Put that device down, put that device away, get rid of that. And it's, don't you remember your parents? Like, this is not new here. Yeah. You know, older people get fearful about the technologies of the young when we don't understand them and we didn't grow up with them. That's a norm. But that doesn't necessarily mean that what the kids are doing is going to destroy their lives. So it'll, so in a way, you're kind of saying that it, this new technology is going to, in a way, have, there are just going to be certain people that are vulnerable to it and are going to struggle with it. I, um, you know, I go to a lot of symposiums and kind of uh, scientific activities where we talk about the nature of our concerns about kids or kids in tech or kids in drugs, whatever. And, you know, when I sit in these symposiums and organizations with some really, really smart people, far smarter than me, I think, I don't ever hear them talk about your average kid. They don't talk about your kid who's doing well. They don't talk about your kid who's doing okay. They don't talk about your kid who has always been fine. When we talk uh, professionally about the problems related to the internet or related to whatever drug is out there right now, we're, we're always talking about the vulnerable child. We're always talking about the child who is has had a rough ride because healthy children, for the most part, don't get lost in addictive behavior. They don't need to. They have people. They feel safe and comfortable with people. And they may dive into the technical world for distraction or drugs and alcohol, but ultimately they want to return to their connections with people because that's more meaningful to them because that's the healthy parenting they had. And you and I also know that the people who tend to get lost in addictions, whether they be technical, technological addictions or substance-based, are often people who were vulnerable to begin with. And you know, I think the same people that I see struggling with some of the tech sex today if they were around 30 years ago, they would have been struggling with gambling. They would have been struggling with alcohol. They would have been struggling with something else. So I don't worry. I do think we have a very fear-mongering press. And we have a very, I saw the cover of, what was it, Time or Newsweek, where they said 30% of American kids are depressed and anxious because of social media. I don't know if you saw that cover. No, I haven't seen that yet. Come on, you're a parent. How could you not see that piece <laughs> of fear-mongering? You know? and what I know is how many parents in America are, are worried about their kids' relationship to tech. And I think about how many parents are going to pick up that magazine because it reflects their fears. But the true reality is we don't have we have very little research on those children who grew up in the age of social media because they're mostly still children. 
And I want to point out, and Dwayne, you know, I talk about this when I talk to therapists. Therapists like you and I are often the lead sort of cheerleaders, if you will, about problems. Oh, everybody's got to look at this. Oh my God, we're having this now, now. It, and, and Lord knows I've written lots of books. Heard me, Sex Addiction 101, Out of the Doghouse, Cruise Control. I've written a whole bunch of books about people with problems. But I also innately understand that there have always been people with problems. There will always be people with problems. And that the new leading addictive distraction is always going to pull those people in. But I don't worry about the general population. You know, if you look around you, Dwayne, we may not all be happy with our politics right now and hope we don't blow each other up. But that aside, kids are still being born. People are having babies. People are having families. They're buying homes. They're going to work every day. I don't think the world has stopped or ended or even been particularly delayed because of our technological advances. But there are some people who are going to get really, really lost. And we already understand that. And it's our, it's our work to make, uh, to be their voice, but not just to be the voice of that's going to be a problem for everyone because then our voice doesn't have meaning. I think that's so well said, Rob. And I appreciate you saying that because I just think that is so true. And especially as, as therapists, we are kind of on the front lines and we're seeing all the, uh, we see the trouble people. We see and the trouble people. About them. Yeah, and to realize that, yeah, you know what? This probably for a lot of people is not going to be a problem, but there are going to be those few who are going to struggle it. And yeah, we can be their voice, and we can help them out of that uh, that issue, that problem, that darkness, whatever they need to yeah. to be able to be there for them. I think, and you know that you've heard. You know, we've talked about this personally. We can be that voice as long as we don't become fear mongering ourselves. Yes. You know, if we become the if we as therapists, I believe, look beyond the people with problems and start to extend those problems to the whole culture and say things like porn is bad for everybody or online hookups are a terrible thing. No one should ever find a partner without meeting them first for coffee or I'm not the moral police here. <laughs> I just help people who have problems. So I'm glad to talk about those problems as they appear in the people who have them and in the research that is done on the people who have these kinds of problems. But the general public's doing fine. They are moving along and they are changing their lives based on technology as the general public always has. I mean, we developed these technologies and we did it not to make our lives worse, but to make our lives easier. And the unintended ne negative side effects are not going to happen to everybody. They're going to happen to the vulnerable. I think that's such a such a valuable point to 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 make and to to say because ooh, it's ooh, a, ooh, 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 ooh. I want to make a better point. All right, I go. I get excited, right? Right. Um, age has nothing to do with this. So when I read all of those pieces that came out, uh, there was a Newsweek or Time about six months ago about how there were concerns about adolescents being isolated and feeling socially anxious and depressed. And it seemed to have to do with the amount of time they're spending on social media and stuff. And I thought, you know, and I watched the world go, oh my God, this is exactly what we thought. Our kids are going to be ruined. You know, the whole generation, my child, blah, blah, blah. And I just thought, well, guys, don't worry about this. Oh, oh, and, oh, by the way, one more thing. I saw people decide that they were going to petition the Apple board and petition the, the uh, Facebook board, you know, to change their policies to help kids. And I just thought, oh, people, come on now. Because I know what's coming. VR is coming. In two or three years, when your kid is sitting there with a headset on, they're going to be with their friends. They're not going to be isolated. They're not going to be alone. They're not going to see you or the room they're in or anything. They are going to see their friends and they're going to be in groups, in communities with those headsets on. And it doesn't, as it doesn't feel any different, whether I sit with you in person or I sit with you with that headset on, 
I don't understand how it's possible that they would continue to have, even if they do, challenges with isolation and anxiety. So what I'm saying is, what's exciting is, I don't think we have to change or alter these early problems that we're seeing with the early development of technology, because as technology rolls out, it's going to solve the problems for itself. I hope so. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I hope so. Well, let me correct. I don't think it's going to solve the problem. Technology is not going to, well, I, that's true. When problems show up in the general public, if they're very, very large problems, of course they're going to have to be addressed because the general public needs to do well. But tech, but there, as you know, we talked about problem people struggling with tech who are more vulnerable. But when I say tech is going to solve their problems, I don't just mean the social isolation and anxiety that I just talked about. I do think that will be solved with VR for the general population. But I think there's tech coming along to help us with drug addicts, to help us with mental illness, to help us with uh, addiction in general. I already see re virtual reality relapse prevention. I already see all kinds of neurobiological methodology being based on computers that is there to help people. And we wouldn't be able to do that helping unless we also had the technology. So again, you know, it all kind of goes around in a circle. I, most of us adapt. Yeah, and I, I totally see your point. Because, I mean, that's definitely true. When we look at, um, I was reading something where they're treating uh, post-traumatic stress with VR and having a lot of success. Oh, yeah. That's they would. Yeah. And... Um, which is really exciting, and and I agree with you. It's it's a very balanced view and, and non alarmist. That's me. And um, I think sometimes as yeah, sometimes in the helping helping profession, you know, we're seeing the worst of the worst, and we have that bias, mm -hmm. and we've got to remember that that there's a lot of very healthy people out there too, and we're Some older people, are, people. I don't know about you, Dwayne. Actually, I do. We're older people. We're not twenty five. We're not thirty. We're not thirty five. We're not forty. And so the world that is unraveling for these younger people that they are adapting into that just is part of who they are is foreign to us. And it'll always be foreign to us. We didn't grow up with it. Digital natives have a completely different experience and thought process related to what they're watching and seeing and what buttons they're pressing than us digital immigrants. So I'm also curious when all the analog generation is gone, when all of those who grew up turning knobs and pressing buttons and going to Best Buy to buy record players when we're all gone. Maybe this generation that didn't grow up shoveling snow, didn't grow up playing with their dog, but grew up on their intensely stimulating device, maybe they're going to be a lot healthier people than we are. We don't know. That is so true. Rob, I want to thank you for coming on. And what would be the last thing you'd want to say before we wrap up? Oh, I would say go Go down to Long Beach, California to see Dwayne Osterland and his uh, and some of his amazing uh, workshops and intensives because he does great work. And uh, I would say that you're listening to someone, not me. I'm talking about my host here, who is just a really good, kind, loving person who has a wonderful family and I think exemplifies where I would want to go if I were getting help. How about that? Oh, that is awesome, Rob. Thank you so much for saying that. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. Um, I will have... Let's do this again. Yes, let's do it again. I'm going to have all of uh, your information on our website at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 37. So you'll be able to get all the information about Rob and his amazing work as well. So uh, thank you everybody for listening. And Rob, thank you for coming on. It is such a pleasure, Dwayne. Anytime. Looking forward to it. All right, everybody. 
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Addicted Mind. Once again, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 37. Once again, if you're enjoying this podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. It really does help. It really does get the word out about this podcast, and I really appreciate it. Also, if you'd like to leave comments on the blog, once again, I love hearing what you guys think about what I'm talking about and what my guests are talking about. So please comment on the blog, let me know. And um, also, if you even want to leave some suggestions for future episodes or topics that you would like discussed, please do that as well. So until next week, have a wonderful day. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.